The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. For you who don't know, I need to probably introduce myself. I'm Rob Spikestra, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I have a day job, and that day day job is to be the headmaster of Morning Star Academy. Um, I have a new title. Uh, This has been a fun Thanksgiving. I have my my entire uh, family with me, three boys, my daughter, um, and my daughter-in-law, and my new title is Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so three months along she is, and so uh, I'm Grandpa to two children, and so she has twins. So that's, that, was, uh, that was pretty exciting for us, uh, exciting news for us. So uh, thanks for the news. Uh, that was fun. <laughs> Appreciate that. Well, let me uh, get, uh, let me, before we get into God's word, let me uh, lead us in a word of prayer. Um, Father, thank you. Thank you for the time. We, we say that every single work, uh, word, uh, a week, sorry. Uh, Father, thanks be to God. And Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word. We, we marvel that you, the God of the universe, had determined to write a book and for you to tell us a story. And not only that, Father, that then you would include us into that story, that you're inviting us into your story And for this, we are thankful and will be eternally thankful. Father, help us this morning. Uh, Your um, word is wonderful and deep and has truth that that should warm our hearts. And we confess, I confess, Father, that uh, as we look to ourselves and our ability to to attend or my ability to communicate, Father, we feel our weaknesses. And so we pray, Father, that you would work out and through those weaknesses that you might cause us to marvel again at your word, but not only your word, but you, the source of that truth in our lives. May you make us more like Christ. May you make us more flourishing kind of people. May we truly feel blessed Father, as a result of our relationship with you, um, as a result of this time. And so, Father, big order, but you're a great God who can fulfill that order. And so we pray that you do that for us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, there is an ancient Indian parable uh, in the Buddhist scriptures, and perhaps you've already heard this one, and if you haven't, you'll, you will hear it. It tells how six blind men were once summoned to inspect an elephant and describe what they could feel. The first at the head declares, 
Sire, an elephant is like a pot. (laughs) Well, the second feels the ears and exclaims, an elephant is like a winnowing basket. Another is led to a leg and insists it is a pillar. And one holding the tail is sure an elephant is a brush. And so on and so forth. Well, the point of the parable, as it is often uh, retold today, is that when it comes to matters of truth, truth is in the eye of the beholder, or in the case of the blind man, the hand of the holder. In other words, your perspective determines your views. Your perspective determines what you would call truth. And so with this view, a person brought up as a Christian will probably see things Christianly. Someone who is brought up as an Islam will see things uh, within Islam, will, will see things Islamic. One, one person's view of abortion uh, is different, is, as in, immoral. Another person might say, well, it's perfectly legitimate. No one is right or wrong. It is just one's perspective or viewpoint. This morning in the introduction, what I want to do for you is, first of all, I want you to see, I would argue for, uh, the chaos that we are finding ourselves in, the division that we see our culture in, and even the fractions within those divisions, that ultimately we can source those those divisions back uh, to this thing called relativism, or this idea that there is no right or wrong, that, that what is right or wrong is only what one sees in your perspective or your view. In other words, it's in the eye of the beholder. But I don't want to leave us there because I think within our passage itself today and even within the Sermon of the Mount, we will find that we can be people who even living within this chaotic world, we can have a great amount of hope and a place to work that out. Well, let me, let me get into this a little bit more, this relativism. Relativism is defined this way. It is the theory of knowledge or ethics which holds that criteria of judgment is all relative, varying with the individual, time, and circumstance. Or as the Buddhist parable simply states, its truth is in the eye of the beholder. Relativism is the worldview that predominates our day and has impacted in a range of human experience, uh, morality, culture, religion, philosophy, and science. So that what we used to think was fact is now more and more becoming just your personal belief. So that even science itself, biology, I would think is probably one of the more recent examples of this, where it seemed to be clear to us what a gender is has now become no more a point of view or a viewpoint relative. And so we live in this world of chaos. We live in this world that people are arguing for what they see, they think is true. It is a, it is a, it is a world of, of trouble, um, a, a world of riots, a world of hate. 
Well, where does this come from? Well, we don't have time this morning to historically go through how it happened that we're at this point of, of relativism, but we can appreciate the reality that causes us to consider the validity of relativism. And that is the reality is, is that we do live in a diverse world. For me, growing up, we did, we did uh, you know, learn about different ethnicities, and uh, it was more of a theory because when we grew up, there was this thing called the Iron Curtain. So the Soviet Union was behind the Iron Curtain, and we didn't really know what was going on there. Or there was this country called China, and China was closed to the world. And so while we kind of studied and tried to understand them, it, it really wasn't something that was experienced within one's life. Little would I know that in my lifetime, not only would I learn about China, I would go to China, and I'd actually bring bring a little girl from China and bring her into my life. That's how much change has occurred over about a 20-year, 30-year, 40-year, okay, 50-year period. <laughs> we experience, we are now experiencing uh, diversity in such a degree that all you have to do is go to work and you can experience diversity or go to the playground or go to the grocery store and you begin to see people who look differently and, and even speak differently. And, and so there's this diversity that really kind of causes us to question relativism, how does this fit? Well, it's out of this diversity uh, that the ordinary person, we need to actually consider relativism. And I want to, uh, I want to uh, explain two types of relativism this morning. And that is, the first is this, descriptive relativism and normative relativism. Descriptive relativism is just that, it's descriptive. Uh, and, and, and that is, it's simply observ uh, an observational point that human beings have differing views about things like morality, religion, culture, and so on. Now, other cultures have a spin on reality that's different than ours. Descriptive relativism does not insist that all these viewpoints are equally right or wrong. It simply affirms that empirical fact that men and women throughout history are different and see things differently. Descriptive. Normative relativism begins there by observing that human societies do view things very differently but it goes much further and argues that each of these different beliefs is right or true only within the framework in which they are believed. That is, there is no absolute truth. There are only beliefs that are right and true relative to the culture that they are held in. Now let me give you um, a striking, and for us as Westerners, a disturbing example of the way a normative relativist might argue. Female circumcision is considered a noble tradition in the Sudan. However, in the West, many condemn the practice as female mutilation. So now you identify the difference of the practice, we would call that descriptive relativism. We would say that the Sudan and West are different in the way they look at this, but normative relativism goes a step further and it insists that neither the Sudanese approval of female circumcision nor the Western disapproval of female circumcision is right in any ultimate sense. A normative relative recognizes these viewpoints are, are both being correct within the cultural framework in which they are held. Female circumcision is right for the Sudanese and wrong for Westerners. This is normative relativism. 
So from now on, when I talk about relativism, that's what I'm talking about. And this is the world we live in. So you add the internet, where we are able to increasingly experience descriptive relativism, confronted to the world that looks and thinks differently, and then you go one step further and mix in normative relativism, where truth is in the eye of the beholder, so that, wow, we become the source of truth. In other words, I become the judge of truth, and even worse, social media invites me to not only enjoy or imbibe in it, but to proclaim my sense of truth. Oh, and it only gets worse. Because not only do I, not only can I find truth on social media, but now I can find truth that other people agree with me. And not only that, it starts feeding me the truth that fits my version of truth so that not only it takes me to the rabbit hole I want to believe in, it, it takes me down into the dark recesses of that, of that uh, rabbit hole in such a way that no longer am I the one in control, but I'm being manipulated and I'm becoming a commodity. And there's effects of this. Cultural relativism is one effect that we've already discussed here, and that is that the habits of one culture are true and valid only within uh, one culture and are not necessarily true for another culture. Uh, moral relativism, moral relativism, of course, is the same logic applied to the question of right and wrong. So for one person, abortion is immoral. For another, it is perfectly legitimate. No one is right or wrong. Such views can only be evaluated within the framework of one's own experience. And then we got religious relativism. Relig religious relativism is the view that religious claims are not true in any external way, but only within the belief system of a particular religious adherent. So Jesus Christ is the way of salvation for those who are within Christianity, but not for the Muslim. Muslims see Allah. Hindus see Vishnu or Krishna and so forth. No one belief is true in an ultimate sense, but everyone's belief is true relative to a cultural framework. To the level that you are comfortable with this discussion, to the level that you are comfortable with that kind of relativism is the level of which you have been affected by, by this, norm, uh, this normative relativism in your own life. But there's a serious flaw. A serious flaw with relativism. And I think it is the source of why we find our country in such chaos and in such division. To be a relativist is to claim superior knowledge over the rest of the world. The serious flaw of the Buddhist parable is that the Buddhists are claiming to see clearly the elephant. They see the truth no one else sees. The rest of us are blind. The Buddhist, the relativist, is claiming to see clearly. And that is a problem for a relativist because that claim is a truth claim. The claim that truth is relative is an absolute truth. So for the claim that truth is relative requires me to say that it is one truth is absolute and it's my truth. 
that I'm the exception to relativism. I am the exception. You need to come to me for all truth. Well, when we all hold that idea, you can begin to see why we're fighting against one another. We need something outside of ourselves. See, the problem with the world is that this is not producing a flourishing life, but only a life of frustration, a life of disappointment, anger, division over anyone who does not agree with me, because now I am the source of truth. And so the division we find ourselves and the fractions we find ourselves is an outcome of this relativism. So in our passage this morning, Jesus is calling us to reject normative relativism and to embrace the flourishing life of absolute truth. So let me show you how that is. So I want, you do, I want to do this by uh, going back to our passage and getting our bearings on this passage. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to give us a little bit of bearing, if you will, on the, where our passage actually fits in the overall, in the overall uh, sermon. So Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. You, you go to verse 1, and we see the context of where this sermon is at. And then, of course, we go into verses 2 through 16, which is what we call the Beatitudes, or that is the blessings, uh, these verses describe the character of the citizen of this new kingdom which Jesus is ushering in. And so he's basically saying, if you have these characteristic traits within you, poor in spirit, for example, or those who mourn and so forth and so on, if you have this in you, you will be a blessed individual, or as we have been saying, a flourishing individual. In other words, what God is calling people back to is what he initially intended at creation, and that is that all of his humanity would be a flourishing kind of people. Or if we might say now living in this day, he is calling us to be the better person that we've always wanted to be. He's calling us to be our better self. And so he says, if you have these characteristics, you will be a flourishing individual. Now you go down to verse 17 and there's a change in the sermon. And in this change, he's now beginning to say, okay, if you are a flourishing individual, you know what it's going to look like? It's going to look like this. And so he begins to go through right living, uh, beginning at chapter five, verse 17. And he goes all the way over uh, to chapter seven, go all the way down to verse 12 and it ends there. And so this is where we are at this moment in, in our passage. And then in verse 13, look what he does there. At the end of the sermon, he says, so now that you know what it looks like and what you can be, a flourishing human being, and, and how that kind of plays itself in life, now let me do this for you. Let me, let me give you an invitation. Enter, enter, verse 13, chapter seven. Enter by the narrow gate. So we are in the right living, and so there are certain actions that he says are going to be true of those who are his. So he's really answering in, in chapter, uh, beginning at verse uh, 15, uh, 17 of chapter 5, he begins describing the actions of these people who are flourishing, these right, these right actions. And he's answering the implied question, what does right living look like with people who are flourishing? Or another way we could uh, hear it is, for those who claim to be part of this new kingdom, what does the king expect of his subjects? And so the question is being answered beginning at verse 17, chapter 5, and ending through chapter 7, verse 12. And so we find ourselves this morning looking at another aspect of a flourishing people, a people part of a new kingdom that Jesus has ushered in. So if you claim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you are part of that kingdom. 
So he says, what's it going to look like to be part of that kingdom? Well, he's going to show us in just a minute here. Now, I've got to keep this in mind. Jesus, a number of times said the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of heaven is near. And it is near. It's near, first of all, in space, in the meaning that it is near in our hearts. It is within human heart that the king establishes his throne, and it is out of the heart that he's established then his kingdom in the world. And it is as near as your heart, but also in terms of space, the kingdom of God is as near as the air that we breathe. Wherever he reigns is where his kingdom exists. And since he is omnipresent, his kingdom reign is everywhere. However, it doesn't feel like it, right? It feels a bit covert. Matter of fact, the kingdom that we live in, the world that we live in is kind of this overt rebellion. But God says, I'm king. And it's overt, but in your life, it's covert, excuse me, in your life, I want it to begin to make its way out. And this is how he, his strategy, this is how his strategy, this is where we come in. The strategy that he has is to infect this world with his kingdom characteristics with those who have him as Lord in their hearts. So listen to how Jesus describes the father's strategy in Matthew 13, verse 33. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So leaven is small, it's unassuming, and really it's invisible to the eye once it's mixed into the dough. But once it's mixed in, given a little bit of time and the energy within that dough, it begins to transform the dough from the inside out. And God says, that's my strategy right there. (laughs) I'm a cook. You're my leaven. And we're gonna make a difference. Or... Listen to another description, Matthew 13, verses 31 through 32. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed it in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nests in its branches. The seed is small. It's unassuming. You can't see it's mixed within the soil. You give a little bit of time and the very energy that is inherent within that seed, it will grow to become a tree. So he says, there's my strength strategy right there. I'm a gardener. And I'm going to grow trees that make life-giving shade and a place for the birds to live. So it is through us living out a flourishing life rightly that is this, in this covert kingdom that infects the world that we live in. And so the question is, well, what does that look like? And so that's what we've been looking at So number one, chapter five, verse 24, we are to be reconcilers. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Or uh, number two, we are to be lovers. Uh, 27 through 30, lovers of uh, the image of God found in others and thus treating others not as objects, but as holy image bearers of God. Number three, we are to be lovers of marriage verses 31 through 32. And so as we do these things, the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven is becoming the kingdom of the earth. God is infecting the world with his kingdom characteristics through his people living rightly as he defines rights. And so no less true today.
in our passage. As we examine this passage on oaths, quietly stored in this block of material, this unassuming, life-giving energy where we mix it into our relationships, it has life-giving potential. So let me read again the passage uh, for you, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king and do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black let what you say be simply yes or no anything more than this comes from evil or the evil one so here's the big idea the ingredient that we are to mix into our daily life is truthfulness which will result in life giving bread. So how do we do that? So let me give you three B's. How do we do that? Three B's. Be cognizant of your role. Be credible in the exceptional and be believable in the ordinary. Let's look at the first one. Be cognizant of your role. Look again at verse uh, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of Old. Now, we've, we've already read this phrase in verse 21 and verse 27 and implied in verse 31, uh, this idea that you've heard of something of old. Jesus isn't finding fault with the Old Testament or the Old Testament law. Matter of fact, if you look back at verses 17 through 20, he's already affirmed that all that the Old Testament and the principles that are there, that these are true and will never pass away. But what he is against is what they have Did you see that there in uh, verse 33? What they have heard. See, it is the oral tradition. It's the commentary. it's It's the interpretation that has been passed down through the centuries and in particular to the Pharisaic interpretation of the law in his day. So let's start with the principle, the principle of the Mosaic law. Uh, the first thing we see here, he says, you shall not swear falsely. Now this command comes from the Old Testament passage, one being from Leviticus 19, where God says through Moses these words. So this is Leviticus 19, verse two. And it starts out this way. You shall be holy, he says to God's people. For I, Yahweh, the Lord, For I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And then in Leviticus 19, he begins to go through a a number of commands that he is giving. So we come down to verse 11, and this is what we read. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by the name, uh, by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. God has determined to connect his name, his character, the proclamation of that character to people, people who are to be living out who he is within the world. It sounds a lot like leaven. Now, the first thing we discover here is this. The command is based on an unchanging character, on the unchanging character of God. The law of the Old Testament wasn't kind of a compilation of people came together and said, hey, this sounds like a good idea. This sounds like a good command. This sounds like a good command. Nor was it even Moses' idea. It wasn't one man who said, here's a good law or here's the laws of God. No, it's rather God who through Moses revealed to his people his law. And so it is based upon him. It is based upon the truthfulness 
of God. Now, here's some good news coming. So wake up, right? Here's the good news. All right. So what is God's truthfulness? Well, God's truthfulness, truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and are the final standard of truth. So Jeremiah 10, 10 and 11. Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting king, Jeremiah writes. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from, and from under the heavens. The claim of scripture, of the God of scripture, is that he is the true God in contrast to other gods. So that as Jesus on the night that he's about to be betrayed, he is praying in the garden to his father. These words, John 17, three, he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is found in knowing who? The only true God. This means that God in his own being or character is the one who fully conforms to the idea of what God should be. He is the only true God and thus out of his character, he is the standard of truth. He is never mistaken in his perception or understanding of the world. He is the final and true standard of truth. This means that God will always do what he said and fulfill what he has promised. So Numbers 23, verse 19, we read this. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And the applied answer is yes. Good news. So Paul, when he writes Titus, he writes in his letter these words. He begins it this way. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, in hope, in, oh, there's our word, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He's the standard of truth. So the principle of the law that you shall not swear or uh, falsely is founded upon the unchanging character of the only true God who never lies. Well, that's the principle. So you know, here's the practice of that Mosaic law. The first words he says is uh, swear falsely, which literally means to per perjure, uh, sorry, perjure oneself, there it is, perjure oneself, and that is that you would knowingly say something false. There's a, there's a second phrase there that he says. He says, you shall not perform to the Lord, uh, but, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, literally, the word sworn means this, to enclose as with a fence or to bind together. And, and the idea is, is that the word is fenced in. Your word is fenced in with something that is greater than yourself, or your word is bound together with something that is greater greater than you in order to give your word some weight. Now, before we, do, we uh, kind of go deeper into uh, those words, I, I want us to consider the why. Uh, 
Why are we to speak what is only true? Why are we to be people with whom we have made, who we, when we make a vow, we fulfill it? Why should we be these kind of people? Well, it goes back to that Leviticus 19.2, which says this, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Again, God's people to be a reflection of the very God who is in them, the only true God. And so God's strategy has been to infect this lying, deceitful world with truth through people whom he calls into his kingdom. So as God's children, we are to imitate the creator and take great care to be sure that we are people who speak truth. So that Paul writes in Colossians 3, 9, and 10, these words, he says, he says this to the church. He says this to us. Do not lie to one another. Because we kind of do that. Do not lie to one another. Then he says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Or he writes to, uh, to the Ephesians church, Ephesians 4.25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another, he says. So he's talking about the church. Or Paul, in his own ministry, he says that he sought to, to practice absolute truthfulness. So he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.2. He says, we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. First point here is this. Be cognizant of your role. Church, be cognizant of your role. This is our role, to be people who speak truth. Because this is his strategy. His strategy is at stake that we be people who infect our relationships with truth. Be cognizant. Well, the second B is this. Be credible in the exceptional. Be credible in the exceptional. In the exceptional. Verses 34 through uh, 36. Now let's look a little bit deeper into the word sworn. Again, the idea is to uh, fence win something that is greater than oneself or to bind a word together with something that is greater than oneself to give your word some weight. Now we find a perfect example of this, and I hope this is encouraging for you, in Hebrews chapter 6. And so uh, please uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to begin at verse 6. Hebrews 6, 16. Perfect example. So uh, Hebrews 6, 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. Okay, this sounds familiar, right? Uh, People swear, there's our word. People swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes. An oath is final for confirmation. So, look at verse 17. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God took an oath. That's amazing. And he took an oath. Look there at verse 17. He did it uh, for us. He did it for the heirs of the promise. Well, what promise is he talking about? And whom did he make this to? 
Well, we, t- we find out verse 13. Verse 13, Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to, swore, to swear, he swore by himself. In other words, God said, I will swear to you, Abraham, that this is going to be true. This promise is going to be true. And I'll swear to something that is greater than myself. I guess I'll be swearing to myself. (laughs) There is nothing greater than God. And so he swears by himself saying, verse 14, surely I will bless you and multiply you. What was the promise? He was he was promising that through Abraham, through his heirs, he would redeem the world. He says, Abraham, I've got a plan. And here's my plan. You're going to be part of my story. And my story is that through you, there's going to come someone who is going to redeem the world. I promise it. And matter of fact, I promise it on an oath. I will swear by myself that this is going to be true. And so what do we do? We celebrate at Advent the coming of Jesus Christ, who is an heir, who's the one who came through Abraham and is the one who has redeemed us. And so we know that this is true because God promised it. And he promised it by himself, by an oath. It's amazing. Okay, uh, it goes on. Uh, Look at verse 18. So that by the two unchangeable things. Well, what is one? Well, the one is, it is impossible for God to lie. He writes that right there. By two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie. And then the second is, he made an oath by himself. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. (laughs) Because the story isn't done. See, the reason we celebrate Advent is not only do we reflect back on God's promises coming true in the person of Jesus Christ, but Advent is also one that says, and he is coming back again. And this is promised by God who will not lie. And he made an oath on himself that this will happen. Our hope is in the God of truthfulness. He will return. That's good news. Well, oaths are needed at times. So back to our passage, while we wait for him to return, there are exceptional moments when we do need to make a vow, we do need to take an oath. And so this is what we discover. See, God is not against oaths or vows because he made one himself. Uh, Jesus makes one every time he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's making a vow there. He's saying, truly, if you really want to know something, here it is, true, true. Paul says in Romans 9, uh, 9, 1, he takes a vow uh, there. God's not against vows, but he's against the abuse of vows or oaths. He's against the flippant use of vows and oaths. See, Jesus' original audience was hearing the myriad of loopholes created by the scribes and Pharisees. They were hearing that if they swore something, here we go, to the Lord, then they better make certain that they they fulfill that. However, oaths were made uh, without explicitly expressing to the Lord. Perhaps it was only implied by, look in our passage there, by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem. They were saying, well, these oaths are a little less, you know, a little less significant. Um, individuals were doing what we do, which is they were trying to give big impressions, swearing by making big promises by various important objects, knowing that the truth was, eh, you know, it's kind of questionable. Or the truth is eh, a little bit of a stretch. 
or the truth is, well, it's a lie. But it wasn't considered a huge offense as long as the name of the Lord was not invoked. In other words, creating subtle hair-splitting distinctions was creating a system of lie-making. So this is why he says, so do not take an oath at all if you're going to do it this way. Because oaths, instead of being a mark of integrity, had become a mark of deceit. Instead of prompting confidence, they prompted actual skepticism. And again, it's not that God is against these events, vows, or oaths. It's the abuse of them. So rather, Jesus is inserting, reasserting the Old Testament standard. Vows and oaths giving our an accommodation to the sinful nature that we have within us. We're prone to deceitful, deceitfulness and lying. And so there are some exceptional moments when a vow or oath is necessary, like marriage. This is why we have set the standard here at Sacred City that couples may not write their own vows. Because of what we have seen in these last two weeks, the absolute importance of marriage and sex within God's strategy to infect this world with his flourishing kingdom principles, we recognize the imperative of a marriage vow that expresses an unconditional commitment of a man and a woman to another. My wife and I are going to enjoy our 33rd anniversary in a couple, couple weeks. Yeah. And I'll tell you what has got us there. It has been the, the steel thread of a vow. Because there have been times when my wife should have left me. And there were times when I probably should have left her if I was looking at anything less than that vow. But it's that still thread of that vow. Because when you make that vow on that day, oh boy, you love her like you've never loved her before. You love him like, oh man, he could never do me wrong. I'll tell you what, working that vow out day after day after day, 365 days of a year, 33 years. Oh, you need a vow. There are times when Exceptional moments, marriage is one of them when we need to be credible. As a witness in the court of law, hopefully that is an exceptional moment for you. Uh, but when it is, be credible. In a contract, when we sign a paper before a notary public, a uh, notary, uh, something, you know, particularly a contract, take it serious, be credible. As a citizen, in a republic, citizens take oaths, takes oaths of office. Citizens defend our country as a soldier. When you take those oaths, be credible. As children of God, we uh, need to mix truthfulness into these exceptional moments, taking vows and oaths, because what is at stake is a God-given strategy to infect the world with life, giving bread of Jesus Christ. So what's at stake is not just our happiness or the good of our country. At stake is God's strategy. Be credible. And then number three, be believable. Be believable in the ordinary. Be believable in the ordinary. Look at verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil, comes from evil or evil one. 
See, what we do in, as fallen human beings um, is we tend to categorize life into the secular and into the sacred. And so this is what the Pharisees were doing uh, by creating an intricate system of oath-making. And so this is what uh, Jesus is referring to when we read these words in verse 34. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for guess what? It's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by you know Jerusalem, uh, that secular city, uh, for no, it is the city of the great king. And matter of fact, do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Even our bodies we do not own. They are God's. There is no secular space where God's law doesn't apply. William Barclay, he's um, a commentator of the 20th century, um, long past. Listen to what he says kind of a long quote. Here's the great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments and some of which God is involved and uh, others of which he is not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in the church and another kind of language in the shipyard or the factory or the office. There cannot be one kind of conduct in the church and another kind of conduct in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere, all through life and in every activity of life. He hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, he hears all words, and there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into the transaction. We will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. So be believable in the ordinary. Be believable by being true to your word at work and at home. Do what you say. Be believable. Take responsibility for your actions, the actions that got you success or your company's success and the actions that caused failure. Be believable. Take responsibility. Be believable by being, yeah, by being the people of God's word. And think about this. Be believable by being truly tolerant. See, what is more ordinary than life on life with people who think differently than you do? See, probably the most attractive thing about relativism for the average person on the street is that the seeming connection between relativism and and tolerance. If I insist that moral, cultural, and religious truths are simply relative, that no one is right or wrong, then this is likely to inspire tolerance toward others' people's view. And we kind of get that, right? But what many relativists think as tolerance turns out to be really an inferior version of the virtue. For, for many today, tolerance simply means I'm going to avoid the argument. Or tolerance means I will just turn my back on what you have to say. Tolerance means I just simply won't listen to you. Tolerance means I will separate from you. Tolerance means I will create a division and divide. 
See, God does call us to tolerance, but it looks like this, a true tolerance. True tolerance does not involve accepting every viewpoint as true and valid. It only involves treating uh, others with love and humility for someone whose opinions you believe to be untrue and invalid. So a tolerant pro-lifer, for example, is not one who accepts as true and valid the pro-choice idea that it's okay to kill an unwanted unwanted fetus. No, the tolerant pro-lifer is one who, while rejecting abortionist arguments, nonetheless treats pro-choicers with kindness and respect because they are made in the image of God. See, it's impossible to be truly tolerant as a relativist because where does the source of truth ultimately lie? It ultimately lies in me, the person. And because it's me, the person, then when you disagree with, with my idea, you disagree with me as a person. But because I'm an absolutist, uh, one who believes in absolute truth, the truth isn't founded in me. It's found in someone much greater than me. And so when I'm interacting with you on an argument, it's not about you, you for your person. It's not about my, me, it's about God. And so what I do is I treat you as God has told me to treat you, and that is that you are made in the image of God, and so I should be, of all people, the church should be the people who are the kindest and most gracious and most merciful as we're interacting with those who disagree with us. Because it's not about us. Because God has given us a great truth, and it's one that will cause them to be flourishing. So be believable, be tolerant, really tolerant. And be believable by proclaiming the gospel. Be believable by sharing the truth claim that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among among men by which we must be saved and do it with grace and mercy, recognizing that every person is made in the image of the only true God. See, being believable is, is really the nobility to treat others with grace, with those in whom disagree with you. For Christians, this ought to be second nature. Since the Lord proclaimed flourishing are those who are poor in spirit there, back in our Beatitudes. The flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. The flourishing are those who mourn, mourn their own personal sin and mourn the sin of the world. Uh, the person who is flourishing are those who are meek. The person who is flourishing are those who are hunger, who hunger and thirst for righteousness within their life, within the lives of others, within their world. They are the ones who are merciful. They are the ones who are pure in heart. They are the ones who are peacemakers. And those are the ones who are willing to stand up for truth and be persecuted uh, for it. So that in a world that is chaotic and divided, he calls us to be people to mix the ingredients of absolute truth into our starving world. So be cognizant of your role. Be credible in the exceptional. Be believable in the ordinary. A little leaven of truthfulness will be life-giving bread to our starving world. A question is asked in Psalm 15 that goes like this. O Yahweh, Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? That is, who can enter into his presence and worship him? Here's the answer. 
He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Well, that disqualifies all of us. Because there isn't a person here who speaks truth in his heart. And so God, he made an oath. He said, I'm going to save these people. I'm going to make a way. And so Jesus Christ came and he walked blamelessly. And he did what was right. And he spoke truth in his heart. He lived the life that we should have lived so that when he went to the cross, he died a death that we should have died in order that we could become alive in him. He became leaven. He invaded our world quietly, unassuming, with this life-giving force like no other life-giving force has ever the world has seen, and that is that God himself, the eternal one, said, I now can offer eternal life to anyone who will receive my son as the one and whom will save them from their sins. So today is the day. Today is the day in which you trust in Jesus Christ as the truth, as the one who lived the life you should have lived and died the death that you should have died in order that you could have life-giving bread him and so on the night that he was betrayed what did he do (laughs) he took bread the leaven of the world took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you and he took a cup and he said this is my cup the blood that I'm going to shed for you a blood of new covenant a new promise a promise that was based upon an oath that was made by God himself a God who can never lie and a God who uh, made an oath by himself in order that you might have hope and that hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ when we take this bread and we take this cup what are we doing we're reminding ourselves of the God of truth who gave us hope in the person of Jesus Christ, and we are people who now can be that hope for the world by being truthful. Let's pray. Okay, Father, that's good stuff from your word. But Monday morning's coming. And so we pray, Father, that you would make us people who are truthful this, this day. Continue to work that out in our lives. May we be people who embrace truth, that we're careful with our words, that in the ordinary daily life, that we're careful to speak truth, that when we say we do, we'll do something, we'll do it, that we'll take responsibility for our lives, Father, and even those, those failures. Help us to be truthful people, Father, in the moments of exception. And Father, so we pray for the marriage vows that have been made so many years ago. We pray, continue to help us to fulfill those vows. And Lord, help us to be reminded of our role in this world. Use us, cause us to be people of hope for a hopeless world that is chaotic and divided. May you work in us, through us, into this world that your kingdom might come as we're going to be praying that your kingdom would come as it is in heaven. So Father, we pray, do that today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.